Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. Succeeding as a family business over generations is an incredibly challenging task that very few families manage well. That's why I'm so excited for this week's episode with Dennis Jaffe. Dennis has over 40 years of experience as a professor, organizational consultant, and family therapist. He attended Yale for both his undergraduate and PhD. Dennis is a frequent contributor to periodicals such as Family Business, Journal of Financial Planning, Private Wealth, Journal of Wealth Management, and Worth Magazine. I highly recommend his most recent book, Borrowed from Your Grandchildren. So without further ado, let's explore some of the non-financial aspects to wealth with Dennis Jaffe. Dennis Jaffe, welcome to Success That Last. Excited to have you on the show today. Well, thank you, Jared. I'm delighted to be here and to be able to share some of my ideas with the audience. Yeah. Well, I first encountered your information ideas in your book, Borrowed from Your Grandchildren, and read it and read it again, and then started sharing these ideas with our clients. And so I figured, what better way to share this information than directly with the authors? So I'm familiar with your background, but let's spend a few minutes talking about kind of your training, your experience, and kind of the interesting, fortuitous circumstances that led you into how you fill your day now professionally. Well, when I was an undergraduate way back In the 60s, a group of us created a place for runaways, and we had shelter for runaway kids. What we did kind of naturally is the kids were kind of running away from home and kind of rebelling, and we said, well, could we create a conversation across generations between you and your parents? And so this was in the 60s, and we had these conversations and kind of made a safe environment to kind of talk about differences and values and how they could live together. And that was 50 some years ago. So here I am (laughs) doing work with families where we get together and we talk about value differences across the generations and how uh, people can work together. So that was how I started, but I gave that up and I stopped working with families and I got an MBA and I started working as a consultant with companies that were going through major culture change and strategic shifts. And that was what I did. And then I got invited in the, um, I guess, the early 80s to a meeting at USC where I taught that was going to be about family business. And I said, I had no idea. What is that about? And at that meeting, it was a gathering of business professors, a gathering of family therapists, accountants, lawyers, (laughs) groups that I had never really encountered in my work. And they were all talking about the problems and the challenges of having a family business. And no one had ever looked at that before, had ever said, well, 
Let's see how we can help family businesses. Let's talk about what's unique about trying to have a family and having a business. And this group got together and created a professional association and really created a field of kind of family business consulting where we didn't start with the idea that family business was bad. The family had to be rational and not deal with their family dynamics, but really start asking, how can we make the family dynamics work in a kind of a positive way with the business challenges? And instead of getting into conflict, how can we help the family really find their potential as both a family business and family and a business? And that's what the field does, tries to kind of harmonize the two systems and to find ways to constructively overcome the conflicts that grow up between generations and between family members and to create a thriving family and a thriving business. And, and, and that's what my work is about. Dennis, in the book, you don't just come at it with your personal opinion. There was kind of an empirical approach to how you did it. And you introduced an idea that I love and have grabbed onto the idea of a generative family. So let's talk a little bit about how, when you wrote your book, the research and kind of the empirical evidence that informs a lot of the ideas that you share with your clients. Was a lot of territory there. First of all, the research. So I've been a business professor for 38 years. And seven years ago, I made a really good career move, which is that I retired. All of a sudden, I had a whole lot of time on my hands and the possibility of saying, what is it you always wanted to do that you never did before? And so I was curious about two things. One, as you said, all these advisors and all these professionals give advice. Is the advice really relevant? Is this really what families should be doing? And the second thing I was interested in is, is the advice that we give in the U.S., is that really universal or are families in other parts of the world operate differently? So I started traveling. And the research project, I was influenced by books like Built to Last and The Search for Excellence, where they, they didn't look at the average. I wasn't interested in the average family business, but I was interested in finding the best, most successful families that had really crossed generations and thrived as a family and as a business. So I started to travel and I um, interviewed families in 20 countries, every continent that had gone past the third generation in terms of ownership and control. So they were in G4, and most of them were in G5, G6, you know, really well developed, 100 years or more. Second, that they had an identity as both a family, they were connected as a family and as a business. And the third is that they were um, large and, and thriving, not necessarily in the legacy business. That's one of the things that I was studying the evolution of families that had shared assets, not businesses. And actually more than half of these families sold their legacy business by the second or third generation, but they continued as a, what we call a business family. So I call them generative families because generative, the term means value creating. And what I found in these families is they created value, not just the first generation created wealth, and then the second, third, fourth generation maintains it, spends it. But really, these families were continually creating value. And the other thing about the idea of generativity is that it's about creating value is not just financial. And these families 
by second, third, fourth generation, they'd been successful for, let's say, 100 years and, and many generations. Their sole purpose was not to make more money. They attended to and they stewarded the wealth they had. They didn't want to lose it, but they were interested in other things that we call non-financial sources of wealth, like the human capital, the values and the skills that they instilled in the next generation, social capital, their impact on the community, all kinds of ways that these families had non-financial agendas. In these later generation families, the non-financial agenda was as important as the financial agenda. So I interviewed these families and asked them, how did they become what they were? What did they do? What were the challenges that they faced each generation? And what kinds of things did they do to maintain themselves as a business and as a family? And the book got very thick because it wasn't just a bunch of opinions. It's really a book of stories. So in the book, there's more than 100 different stories about families and what they do and how they go about it, how they meet, how they make decisions, how they deal with change and innovation, how they deal with their role in the community. There's all kinds of stories of these global businesses and what they do. Dennis, I think most business owners get exposed to rice paddy to rice paddy, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. So this idea that generational wealth is typically dissipated by the third generation. And so I'm curious, what do you think it is that gets in the way so consistently or predictably? Is it considering wealth purely from a financial perspective, you think, the leading cause? Well, let me talk about that, because I've actually been writing recently about that and, and saying that a couple of things about that. First of all, this generation shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve is simply not true. The research, for example, that they say, well, family businesses don't last for three generations. Well, they don't, but it doesn't mean that the families are penniless. Families uh, sell their business sometimes for hundreds of millions of dollars, and they may decide that everybody should take some of the money and go. That doesn't mean they're back to shirt sleeves yeah. again. And the other thing is that by saying shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve as if it's inevitable, of course, a lot of families over generations don't retain wealth, but a lot of them do. And what I see when people say shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, it's kind of a knock. They're kind of saying, well, then the first generation, they were wonderful entrepreneurs, but the second, third generation, they're just a bunch of spenders and consumers and entitled people. They're not really wealth creators. And yet the families that I studied, yeah, there were some family members who were you know, not working and not productive and had problems, but happens in every family. It's not a thing about wealth that causes kids to have problems and difficulties. It's just a thing about people and families. So what I saw in these families is, first of all, the wealth in the first generation was only the start, and the second, third, fourth generations had people in it that added to the wealth and innovated and created new organizations and sold and bought other things and did things that added wealth. And the second thing that I saw in these families is that they made a commitment to the future, and they developed all kinds of ways in which the family was creating non-financial wealth, was creating value by educating the next generation, was creating value by giving to the community, was creating value by having a you know wonderful 
thoughtful people getting together. So these families were creating value all across generations, not going shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. I appreciate the clarification. I guess when you look at the literature and the amount of support out there, there's a lot of accountants, there's a lot of investment advisors, a lot of attorneys that come alongside business owners to provide technical support generally from a defining wealth as financial capital, but there's a lot less kind of support and understanding to these non-financial forms of wealth. But what you're saying is these families that have experienced four, five, and six generations of sustained prosperity and flourishing have approached non-financial wealth with intentionality. I guess, how does that start? Is that kind of the wealth creator? Is that Gen 2? It's very interesting. First of all, got to say, the wealth creator creates the wealth, but the wealth creator does not create the generative idea. So what happens is the family is successful and sometimes rarely actually in the first generation, but the second generation begins to get together and even the third generation, and they begin to say, we're wealthy. We've been incredibly successful. We're on the far, far right side of the curve. We're privileged. We have to be grateful. But then they begin to say, well, now we have more wealth than we could ever use. What's it for? And so the second, third generation, not that they stop creating wealth, not that they stop being stewards, but they begin to say, well, what is this for? What do we want to use our wealth for? And the conversations that grow up in these successful families has to do with that. What's it for? What do we want to do with it? Do we want to live a good life? Yeah, but that doesn't account for all of it. Do we want to educate and develop our next generation? Yes. Do we want them to be productive? Yes. Do we want to make our community better? Yes. Do we want to deal with the environmental and some of the social crises that we see? Yes. Do we want to um, do things together? Well, some family members say, I don't want to be part of this conglomerate of family members. And other people say, this is wonderful. I am so privileged to be part of the family. So they make choices. And the choices of these families are to do things together because of their original success. They're known in the community. They're known to be successful. They have a family name and a reputation. They're known in the community. People look to them. And so they begin to say, "Well, well, let's create a shared mission together. Other families that were not in my study, obviously, say, hey, we're selling the business. We're making a lot of money. The thing that we want to do is to give a share to each of the family members and let them go off and and do what they want to do with it, create different lives. So I'm looking at the people that say, because we're successful, we feel a, a deep desire to do something together rather than separately. And then that's what makes for a family enterprise rather than just a bunch of wealthy people. In your book, you describe kind of the Gen 1 is the wealth creator. Gen 2 is kind of often collaborating siblings. Gen 3 is a community of related households. Right. I guess as you go look at Gen 2 and Gen 3 and this idea of introducing intentionality and exploring a shared statement of values, how do you take this from like a conceptual idea in a book and then begin to introduce this idea into your your family? Well, very, very clear what the first step is. Let's look at the first generation is a wealth creator. 
maybe it's a couple that are close together, but more or less, it's an individual. And so because they've created wealth on their own, they don't have to share ideas with everybody. They're, they're kind of confident in themselves. They can be secretive. They don't have to be transparent. But they're basically working on their own. So that's their model. Their mindset is one person does it. Now, what happens is the second and now the third generation, because people have much longer lifespans today, we don't think anymore of a two-generation family and it goes from the older generation, passes on to the uh, children. Now it's a three-generation family and there's an elder, a person in his 60s, 70s, 80s, who may be the wealth creator. Then there's the next generation of siblings and their spouses and their children, which could be like a dozen or more people in the third generation. And the first challenge that they come upon is one that the older generation, the founding generation never faced, which is we have to work together. We have to agree. And the one skill that a first generation founder does not have is being a collaborator and sharing and sharing power and working with other people that have different ideas. So here's what happens. In these successful families, the second and third generation have to say, we need to work together. If we're going to stay together, we need to have a structure. We need to have an organization. We need to set goals. We need to decide what we want to do, how we want to invest our money. What do we want to do with it together and separately? That means that the the, the second, third generation has to, in some way, begin to have meetings and create an organization. So the shift from first generation, where it's all about one person and they don't need to collaborate with anybody to the next generation, is comes when the family begins to have a single family meeting and they talk about their wealth and they talk about what they want to see and what is the expectations and do they want to work together? Is this the business that they want to be in or do they want to be in another business? Do they want to have a foundation? And they start to have conversations. And out of the conversations, the family says, you know, we have so much wealth. We have so many issues to talk about. We have to meet regularly. And so they create some sort of a family organization which manages the wealth, which looks to how the wealth is used in the family, which gets the family together, which has them talking about difficult issues and issues where they have disagreements, and includes planning and creating a roadmap for what are their goals? What do they want to do together? What things do they do separately? What things do we do together? And these large families that are, the families in my study were arranged from like 10 or 20 people to sometimes hundreds of people. So it was very funny. When I started the interviews, I said, well, tell me about your family. And the first response I got, the first family I talked, the response was, what do you mean? (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? What do I mean? Tell me about your family. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. I have not one family. I have several families. I mean, are you asking me about me and my spouse and my kids? Are you asking me about me and my uncles and my cousins and you know, you know, all the people in our family. And I began to see that I had to use different words. So I use the word household for the nuclear family that we often call family. And that's a household. 
And then in the second, third, fourth generation families, I use the, the word family for the extended family. I sometimes think of it as kind of like a tribe, even though it's not, they don't live on the same land together the way tribes used to. They're a kind of a new modern form of tribe. They're kept together by their tradition and they have a shared culture and values. Even if they live in different places, they get together regularly. They own things together. They share them. They have similar values. They have goals. They have leadership and they respect the leaders, but the leaders also respect the people that the other people in the family. They're not dictators. And this is what these extended families are. Dennis, to clarify for our listeners, these families were of significant capacity. What was the average net worth of the families that you studied? Well, they range from 200 million to billions, and the average was somewhere you know above 800 million net worth. So they were significant. But here's what's important about it. So you, maybe people are saying, wait a minute, that's not me. Why should I care? It's interesting to hear about billionaires, but I'm not a billionaire. They were not always billionaires. And what I asked these families to do is say, well, now here you are, your fifth generation. Look back and tell me what you did with great grandpa and what kinds of decisions were made in the second and third generation. So these families were talking about the shift to the second generation and third generation retrospectively from a position where obviously they were successful. So this is a way of looking at successful families because they had gotten across the generational things. So what's interesting is to ask them, so what did you do in the second generation? What did you do in the third generation? And the stories that they ask, maybe they're, if they're billionaires collectively as a family and they have 100 family members, they're all affluent, but each individual is not a billionaire. And that's an important thing is people in these families often talk about, hey, everybody knows my family and, and the family say, well, we're billionaires. Well, there's 300 of us and most of the money is in trust and most of the money is invested in the business or real estate that's not entirely liquid. So we're affluent and we're comfortable, but, but don't look at me and say, I'm a billionaire. I'm one person that has a vote in this family. I'm not the decision maker. And there is no single decision maker. There are committees and boards and all kinds of ways in which we make decisions together as a community. Dennis, by the nature, the job that I have today, I, I spend a lot of time working with wealth creators that have a deep heart for wanting to make sure that they set their family up for long-term flourishing. But that self-reliance that's so common amongst the talented wealth creators, certainly something I've observed. I'm curious from your perspective, what would be some of the things that a wealth creator could do for the rising generation, Gen 2 or Gen 3, to prepare heirs to really flourish going forward? The first thing, and it's very clear, is that they have to disavow and get over the idea that they have, because they've been so successful, that they know how to do it. They know a lot of things, and they're definitely smart. But what they don't know, they don't understand is what it feels like to be their child, to be the next generation. And the other thing is that because they made the money, they have this unfortunate tendency to look down at their children and say, well, you haven't made money and I have, so somehow that makes me more important. And the families that are successful, 
they adopt a learning orientation towards their kids. They're not trying to program their kids and prepare them and they want to teach them values, but they're also open to learning. And what happens in these successful families is they say, hey, there's certain things that I expect of the next generation, responsibility, frugality, respect for each other, working together. But I don't really know. I've spent a lot of money to educate you. This is happens because the next generation has a wonderful education and they've traveled. And very importantly to say today that they're, the older generation is probably not born into digital world and the younger generation is. So they know things that the older generation doesn't know, and they have a different understanding of the world. And the families that are successful are where the older generation says, well, here's some values that I have, but I don't really know how you're going to apply them. And I want to really learn from you. And the families that get together with an attitude that we want to learn from each other, and I want to hear what you want and how you see the world and, and what would work for you. And then together we will make decisions about what we want to do with our wealth. The next generation, they're not looking to say, okay, I want somebody to hand the business over to who's exactly like me. Because A, there's no such person. And B, the challenges of a 30-year-old business in the different world today is not the same challenges that this person faced when they were setting up the business. So I'll give you an example. One elder said he's 80. He's not giving up control. And I said, well, my kids are running divisions. They're executives. They're responsible, but they're not ready to be the leaders. And I said, well, tell me about that. What is it that you're seeing that they're doing? And one of the, the elders said, well, my son's not a good leader. Why not? Well, he's friends with his employees. He doesn't tell them what to do. He asks them their opinion. Oh, <laughs> And so you can see, it's like the older generation, he'd been raised on a different set of values. And he didn't really understand that his son, who was working with the employees and asked, was a fantastic leader. These are the kinds of things that you have. So if the father had been saying, well, I'm not going to make him the leader because he's too nice, he would be in a situation where he'd be actually destroying the legacy that he wanted to see. And this is where the older generation has to understand that things are different. And they have to respect the differences rather than try to make things be as much as possible exactly the way they were with them, which is uh, setting themselves up for failure. Dennis, we work extensively with our clients that are interested in this topic, but outside of your book, which I can and can't recommend enough, borrowed from your grandchildren, what are some of the other resources available to members of family enterprise that really want to ensure long-term flourishing? There's a number of, of books. Actually, I have one right here that I can recommend by a colleague in Seattle, uh, David. And you know, he's in, he's in Vancouver, Dear Younger Me. And this has, has a lot of the things that I was talking about, you know, where he's an heir to a huge family business and now he's a consultant, but he's writing, what did I wish I knew when I was younger? There's a number of books about wealthy families, how they grew. Some of them are very, a little negative about how we lost the family firm, but there are others that, that are very positive and they can teach us about these families. Oh, here's somebody. Thayer Willis is a person who lives in Portland and she's written a book 
a long time ago, written about navigating the dark side of wealth, which is about some of the challenges of next generation. And she wrote another book called, I think it's called Good as Gold, about kind of how next generation people can grow and thrive and learn from each other. And there's a lot of books coming out, but I think you should look for books by people that are from families or that are based on not just one person's opinion, but a lot of experience. The aggregation of a lot of empirical evidence from not the average, but those that have actually figured it out. Right. So mm-hmm. awesome. Well, Dennis, again, we could probably bang at this for hours, but in the spirit of time and efficiency here, I'm going to let you go. But thank you very, very much for taking a few minutes today to share some of the insights, many of them actionable, that first, second, third generation families can take to explore not only the financial capital, but the non-financial capital aspects to long-term family enterprise success. So wonderful. And I hope people can invite people to take a look at the book. It's not written for professionals. It's written for families. It's got a lot of stories. Really, I'm just happy to be able to be uh, helpful to families that are deciding what to do and how to do right by their next generation. Thank you so much, Dennis.